Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. This should be fun. Maybe in the future I'll stick to uncontroversial topics like euthanasia or eating only plants. The Jordanian soldier I confronted upon crossing the no-man's land from Israel just a few weeks ago made it clear that I could not bring my Chanukiah into Jordan. So I walked back across the no-man's land, leaving Noah with the rest of our luggage in Jordan, and sort of sheepishly asked the first Israeli soldier I could find what I was supposed to do with this contraband Chanukiah. The soldier smiled at me almost as if this odd request were a welcome intrusion on his day defending a border. He had me write down my name on a post-it note, stuck the post-it note on one of the branches of the Chanukiah, and told me I could pick it up upon my return. I walked the no man's land for a third time and collected Noah and had a great day in Jordan. When we crossed back into Israel the next morning, I once again sheepishly asked if anyone knew where confiscated Chanukiot were at this border crossing. We were sent to a trailer, within which was a man behind a desk, behind whom was a huge cabinet filled with many, many Chanukiot. At least part of this soldier's military service is reuniting Jews with ritual objects that are apparently prohibited to bring into Jordan. Israel is many things, which makes sense because Israel, the state, emerged from Israel, the notion, which itself emerged from many different Zionisms. There was Herzl Zionism, in which the Jewish state would be the solution to the Jewish problem. Israel would normalize us and make us just like everyone else. And no one would hate us ever again. Nice try. There was Achad Ha'am Zionism, which was less about sovereignty and a flag and more about Israel, the land, as the greatest incubator of meaningful and creative and rich Jewish life and expression. No Galut, no diasporic Judaism could come close. There was the Zionism that was to create a Jewish refuge where Jews would always be safe and to which Jews could always return. And yes, Israel was and is a place where the Chanukiah is not another's symbol, not a threat, but our symbol. Israel would be a place where the person with the gun was there to defend you and your religious practice. Israel would be a home for any Jew And I have rarely felt that hominess of Israel as palpably as I did when dropping off and then collecting this Hanukkah. Before Israel was a modern democracy, before Israel was developing ethical norms for its army, before Israel was trying to make peace with implacable enemies, before Israel got splintered into the alphabet soup of nonprofits that seek to to support and prod and defend and critique and hold Israel to a high standard. Israel was to be the place more than anywhere in the world where during our festival of lights and religious freedom, 
a Jew would feel at home. I will go to my grave defending that Israel's right to exist, its need to exist. To me, it is worth every complication, every disappointment, every heartbreak. I neither lionize the state of Israel as anything close to a perfect polity, nor do I fetishize statelessness and powerlessness and the return to a people unmoored from its land. Anyone who knows me even a little bit knows that I'm a proud, liberal, committed Zionist who believes in the Jewish and democratic nature of the state and who finds aspects of Israel's society and its prospects for the future that can make me nervous. The recent elections have caused an upheaval in many parts of the Jewish society. The involvement of a far-right party whose leaders have expressed some unforgivable, odious, and even racist views about Arabs in particular make us nervous, angry, even embarrassed. Itamar Ben-Gvir is not my idea of a Jewish hero or role model. And I also hope that his influence in the government and in the affairs of state will be more circumscribed than people fear. The further kowtowing to ultra-Orthodox parties who are far more committed to a theocracy-adjacent Torah society than they are to the modern democratic state of Israel, that alienates many and makes us afraid about our claim to the land, the state, the Kotel, the full experience of being a Jew in Israel. And for some, Bibi himself is a lightning rod. Many consider him a corrupt politician who believes in himself more than he believes in Israel, and an unrepentant staller who has used his years and decades in office not to advance peace, but rather to forestall the inevitable sacrifices that most agree will have to be made for peace. I identify with a good number of those and other concerns, and nothing, nothing about the most recent democratic elections and their aftermath have upended any of my basic commitment to and belief in the state of Israel, so much so that I feel deeply pained and even offended that some of my colleagues have responded by using this moment to pull back from Israel, even to desist from reciting the prayer for the state in their communities, as if this prayer is for a particular government or official. It's a prayer for the loftiness of the idea of the state of Israel. I would have been equally offended had more right-wing Jews who believed that the Oslo Accords were the most dangerous road modern Israel ever walked on, or who felt utterly betrayed by Ariel Sharon's forcing disengagement upon the Jewish communities of Gaza, had such Jews chosen to express their sense of outrage and protest by stopping to pray for the state of Israel, it would have pained me as much as knowing that more liberal-leaning colleagues are doing so today. I'm standing in an awkward place. As I've said many times before, I am not the CZO, the Chief Zionist Officer of Temple Beth Am. We have no formal Israel platform in the synagogue. It is not my job or my desire to tell you how I think you should vote were you to make Aliyah any more than it would be appropriate for me to tell you how to vote here. But I do think it is at least part of my job and also my heavy honor to share with you the view as I see it as of this moment. 
knowing that I too am evolving all the time. This is also an awkward moment because I know some of you in this room would like to say to me, Rabbi, don't you dare apologize for this government and for the messiness of sovereignty. And some of you want to say the opposite to me. Rabbi, don't you dare engage in apologetics for this government as they are irredeemable. I place myself, as you can guess, somewhere in the middle of those polarities and I want to share my truth using a few stories and a piece of Torah, of course. Javi and I flew to Israel on Purim Day 2002 with infant Noah. This was a horrific era for Israel in terms of terrorism. It seemed that buses were blowing up every day, taking the lives of so many, including two friends of mine. Summer teen tours struggled, gap years dwindled. It really was not clear that Israel was safe. This would be our first trip bringing a child, and so the stakes seemed higher. I had been in Israel during the Gulf War with a gas mask on in the middle of the night, and yet I had no memory before in my life of having been afraid to go to or be in Israel. This felt different. I remember being agitated on the plane. Was I being indefensibly reckless, putting my life and my child's life in mortal danger? The CNNification of the conflict had penetrated my consciousness, and as I landed, I braced myself for being witness to nonstop carnage. And then we got our luggage. We passed through customs, walked outside to breathe the Tel Aviv air, were met by my parents and a sunny sky, and an Israeli cab driver almost belovedly and familiarly trying to mess with us on the use of the meter. And I remembered something important, which is germane today. It is different when you are there. The crises do not disappear. But no reality can be, held, can be beheld in any full way from such a distance. And earned nervousness can morph into unhinged and unfettered histrionics when engaging in punditry from so far away. Every player becomes caricatured in our minds. Every fault line is Andreas. We forget that for most Israelis, Jewish and non-Jewish, for most of their hours during most of their days, they are not living headlines. They're living small lives, burdened by small-ish things that, yes, are often impacted by the larger forces that emanate from the consequences of elections and seated governments but they're not living a news article. And their perception of their reality on the ground can be far removed from our certainty about what their perception ought to be. We ended up having a lovely week in Israel in 2002, with our biggest worry being whether the hotel would kick us out because infant Noah spent the whole night shrieking. And while terror was real, and destroyed far too many lives during that era. Terror was not the totality of Israel even during these days, not by a long shot. During my recent trip to Israel, including briefings with journalists, peacemakers, military experts, community leaders, elected officials, one truism kept being repeated. Israel is more than its politics. It is more than its politicians. 
It is more than its negotiations or lack thereof with the PA. It is more than Bibi and Ben Gvir and Smotrich. As much as Israel is a coalition government and Israel is undue power to the Haredim and it is the future of the Abraham Accords, Israel is also the woman living in Nativ Asara, literally on the Gaza border, decorating the border wall that faces Gaza with images and words of love and brotherhood because she will not give up on peace. And Israel is the Haredi man of British descent who briefed us for 90 minutes on realities within the ultra-Orthodox world that rarely make the headlines and his efforts both to preserve their understandable wish to live as much of an isolationist life as possible and also to prod his own community towards productivity and self-reliance and even a sense of modern national identity. Israel may be reasonably and properly concerned with the plight of the Palestinians and the extent to which even Israeli Arabs justifiably feel like second-class citizens in too, part of their, too many parts of their country. But though you might think otherwise from some Israel-focused nonprofits, Israel is not just that reality. And hyper-focusing on it, including how this government will or will not confront that slew of challenges does a tremendous disservice to the comprehensive nature of Israel's society and even to the questions of the truest threats to Israel's future. According to some that we heard from, those threats are nowhere near Gaza, nor the West Bank, Judea, Samaria, nor within the makeup of the Knesset itself. We heard from a former IDF colonel, a secular self-avowed lefty who has no love for the ultra-right wing or the ultra-religious, who spoke to us on a windy bluff overlooking part of the border between Israel and Syria on the Golan Heights. To him, focusing on Oslo and the peace process and the laws regarding Israel as a nation state, to him, those are quaint frivolities. Rules about who gets to wave which flag and notions of potential multiple national anthems to enfranchise Israeli Arabs? Interesting, but a distraction. If you want to think about Israel's future and its true, threat, true threats, he would say, look north and look east to the Lebanese and Syrian borders, to where Hezbollah sits with an arsenal that makes Hamas's in Gaza seem like child's play, to geopolitical forces, so much of which are driven through nihilist Iran that will be mollified and changed not a whit no matter how miraculous a peace plan Israel might one day negotiate with the Palestinians, for whom the two-state solution is at best a step towards Israel's utter destruction. Talk to some, including in our community, and you will hear that every Jew and every rabbi and every of conscience and every shul and every school should drop everything else and focus only and exclusively on Ben Gvir and Smotrich and the rise of ultranationalism and ultra-orthodoxy in Israel and the threats that they all pose to Israel's Jewish and democratic nature. Talk to this well-informed specialist on the Golan, and all of that pales in comparison to the actual existential threats Israel faces day after day, and to which insufficient attention is being paid even within Israel, let alone beyond her borders. Talk to this man, and all every Jew and every Zionist should be doing is getting as many people as possible to realize that when Iran speaks of annihilating Israel, they mean it, and that Iran, through its proxies in Syria and Lebanon, is closer to Israel's border than we'd like to imagine, 
And that complicating things even further is that as much as Iran's and Hezbollah's Shiite extremism is an existential threat, they are also serving as an unintentional bulwark preventing ISIS, the extremist Sunni movement, from being even closer to Israel's northern border. And so while containing Hezbollah and keeping Iran from nuclear capability is of the utmost concern, eliminating Hezbollah's presence as if they were even conceivable would bring its own nightmares. According to this expert, nothing else matters. Is he right? I don't have the expertise to know for sure. But I don't think he's so obviously less right than anyone else trying to convince any one of us what is the most important issue facing the state of Israel. When you are there and you truly listen, things are different. And in the meantime, democracy is working, not perfectly by any means, not here either. But given the terrain, the region, the pressures at play, and the reasons for it to utterly fail, democracy where we trust and accept the outcome of fair elections, even when the results are painful to us, it's working magnificently. People in Israel are voting and living their lives. And then based on where they plot themselves in the world of ideas, they are protesting and advocating and organizing and planning already planning their next vote to make their lives and others' lives better and more safe and more free. This is a triumph, one for which I will continue to pray, lustily and without hesitation. And as I pray, I will thrill at the luxury and the historical wonder that had infinitesimal chances of ever coming to being, the luxury of being upset the luxury of wishing a better or kinder or more ethical Jewish government were in power in Israel. How many centuries of our people would have given everything they had to live in this, even this, especially this Jewish moment? This fraught moment is to me the definition of the pleasure and the burden of Jewish sovereignty. Being able to be angry at this temporary representation of Israeli leadership and then working towards a better one that more represents your or my or our values. Some of the hand-wringing is sensible. There are real dangers lurking as a result of this election and every election related to the authority and independence of the judiciary in Israel and related to which Jews have full access to the Jewish state and related to which parts of Israel's robust but imperfect democracy will be tested. But to me, some of the hand-wringing seems myopic, like a bit of play-acting, or even, I'll grant, unintentionally dishonest. Especially if the hand-wringing is about concerns of extremism of some government officials. I remind us that many in the Jewish community, myself included, applauded the previous Israeli government, a government that was revolutionary because of, for the first time, the full involvement of an Arab political party, Ra'am, giving Arab voices more representation in government. This was a good thing. But it was also the involvement of an Islamist Arab political party, or really an amalgamation of parties, some of which are truly local manifestations of the Muslim Brotherhood, a movement now banned in Egypt because it's too extreme 
and which is decidedly anti-democratic, ferociously anti-Zionist, and anti-Semitic in our government. Some of whose stances on the notion of a modern secular state would make Ben-Gvir and Smotrich seem like woke progressives. Most of us did not demonize Israel when that government was seated, asking how dare it agree to be led by even partially by a party that was so sworn to the undoing of Israel as a Jewish state, so sworn to values against ours. Most of us did not rend our garments, did not boycott officials in the government, did not refuse to say the prayer for the state of Israel. We championed the new reality, at least its potential to propel Israel forward. And I'm going to guess that had a representative of that Ra'am party been in LA looking for a speaking gig, most of us would have agitated to host that talk rather than boycott such a presentation. Can we not confront this moment with the same cautious curiosity? Can we not remember that when Israel elected the terrorist Menachem Begin in the 70s, even in an era when Israel was mostly a darling unifier among American Jews, many worried that that was the end of moral, liberal Israel. And then he went and made peace with Egypt. Can we not remember that when Ariel Sharon, whom some considered the butcher of Lebanon and even a war criminal for his military engagements and decisions during the Lebanon War, when he was elected prime minister, chicken littles all around were prophesying again the end of a good and a peace-loving Israel that we could defend. And then he went and infuriated the Israeli right wing by disengaging from Gaza and handing Jewish homes and towns and farms over to Palestinians, hoping they would make of it a Riviera. Can we import some of that perspective into this moment and allow ourselves to breathe and read and think? and try to escape some of the confirmation bias that assumes from the beginning that everything this government will do will be unremittingly and irredeemably evil. Can we at least pray that Israel will surprise us? And can't we believe it to be possible? I once had an unexpected and challenging moment preparing for a conversion Beit Din. On this Beit Din was a colleague who is suspicious of Zionism and Jewish nationalism itself. I love this colleague, though we diverge dramatically when it comes to the meaning of Israel and the life of a Jew. Now, in the standard conservative movement conversion procedure, teaching about Israel and Zionism is central to the curriculum. And the final declaration that a conversion candidate must utter before the Beitin includes saying that he or she will commit as part of a life of Jewish observance to, quote, identifying with the state of Israel, the Jewish homeland, the center of Jewish hopes and aspirations. I had had candidates say that line numerous times without giving it a second thought. This colleague challenged me. He said, we in the conservative movement argue for the original and rather liberal Talmudic understanding of conversion, pushing against some streams, streams of orthodoxy that to us seem to require too high of a standard of promised observance just to get in the door. Why would we add to the conversion process an ideological commitment that could not possibly have been envisioned by our great Talmudic sages? Who said that to be a Jew requires being a Zionist? Would we not consider, say, Satmar Hasidim, who are fanatically anti-Zionist, to be Jewish? It was an important and healthy challenge. 
I responded then that while of course it is the case that in original Jewish law from thousands of years ago, Zionism was not a prerequisite for converting to Judaism, and while of course it's the case that I would never question the Jewish identity of a Hasidic or non-Hasidic, for that matter, person who was not a Zionist, it's also the case, at least to this Jew and this rabbi, that I have no interest in bringing newly into the fold a Jew who does not embrace in some meaningful way the state of Israel's messy and extraordinary fulfillment of millennia of Jewish longing for Jewish life and Jewish self-determination in this land. I have no interest in putting my name on a conversion document for someone who will take this new Jewish identity and wield it against the state of Israel, writ large. Wield it to prod Israel? To live up yet more to its own lofty of ideals? Of course. But in such a way that recognizes that Israel's Existence in the world and in the Jewish consciousness is a good thing, something worth defending, something worth praying for. It's Parshat Shmot. It is Israel under brutal oppression, longing for freedom and a land of their own. And it's also Moshe, a reluctant leader, confronting the Holy One at the bush that refused to be devoured. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, the great 19th century leader of German orthodoxy, has a fascinating take on one verse that seems to push Moshe in two opposite directions. Standing at the bush, God tells him two things. Number one, al tikrav halom, do not get any closer. This is hot. This is dangerous. Keep your distance. And then, shal na'alecha mi'al raglecha, Take your shoes off your feet. Rabbi Hirsch, for him, this second instruction is an invitation to intimacy, to get closer. Take off your shoes. Get comfortable. He connects it to the way the Kohanim will serve in the temple one day, barefoot, with no chatzitzah, no barrier between them and the holy territory on which they tread. If they're going to serve, they need to not be afraid to get down and dirty, to get closer, no matter how charged, no matter how potentially dangerous holiness can be. I'd like all of us to see ourselves as Moshe right now, gazing into an entity, a state, an idea that at times seems to be aflame, dangerously on fire, and also refuses to dissipate, refuses to go away. We can step back on occasion to give ourselves a break from the heat and perhaps to gain perspective. It's hard to maintain the outrage and the anger and the hopes and dreams without interruption. But then, like Moshe, let us step forward, take off our formal garb, get close to the very thing which seems to be self-immolating, but which actually is sustainable and which perseveres, because on some level it is holy, and because it simply must, because the alternative would be catastrophic, as our people have known all too well. For that lowly bush, both aflame and standing firm, can we not pray? I received a lot of emails this week. The email I received that made me most emotional came from an unexpected source. A Temple Beth Am member emailed me and asked me and the other clergy to see if we could produce a letter affirming this person's Jewish identity. Why? 
because this person was strongly considering declaring Aliyah. I was surprised for a variety of reasons. For one, for what I know of this person's family, they and their children were not about to get on a plane and move to Israel. So why declare Aliyah, especially now? And secondly, given my reasonable assumptions of where this person stands on many issues, I would have thought that the current Israeli moment and government might have given this person, if anything, more pause about ever moving to Israel, as the person imagines in what way they might or might not be embraced by Israel's current and evolving society. So I was confused. And I asked. And the member's response overwhelmed me. Here's some of it. In quotes, I've just been thinking about this for a while. The most recent elections have convinced me that I want to have more scratch in the game, with more trips to Israel in my future. And while I can't give them credit for the long gestating desire, I suppose the election results might have lit a fire under me. I'm so moved that standing before the bush, as it were, this person is choosing to draw close. This person, I now know from some follow-up exchanges, is indeed worried about the result of this election, does indeed find some of the people leading Israel to be hard to defend, has real concerns about Israel's treatment of Arabs, Israel's treatment of the notion of Palestinian statehood, and of non-Orthodox Jews and other vulnerable people in a society. And is choosing in this moment, both symbolically and practically, to step forward, to stake a larger claim in the Zionist project, to draw a family closer to the land and the state of Israel, to the say that the result of no election can weaken or sully or jeopardize an enduring relationship between a Jew and the land of our ancestors, and we pray, of our descendants. This person sees the fire and wants to be closer to it, to help harness it into light and warmth and the brightest future possible for our people. Yes, I will pray for that. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.